Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In 1990, Earth First activists from Mendocino County, California, were on a road trip to rally support for a summer effort to protect old-growth redwoods in Northern California. For years prior, logging practices took well over 90% of the original old-growth redwood in the area. Daryl Cherney and Judy Berry, the organizers for Earth First, were in their car in Oakland, California in May 1990 when a bomb exploded underneath the driver's seat where Judy Berry was seated. She and Daryl Cherney were immediately arrested, suspected of bombing themselves. Judy Berry suffered severe injuries to major portions of her body. Although charges were never filed against these two people, the police authorities have yet to locate the bombers. Daryl Cherney and Judy Berry sued and won a jury award of over $4 million against the Oakland Police Department and the Federal Bureau of Investigation for violations of their First and Fourth Amendment rights. The film, Who Bombed Judy Berry, produced by Daryl Cherney, attempts to answer the question posed in its title. It examines the struggle with law enforcement in finding the real bombers and chronicles the history of the local environmental movement in Northern California. Christina Onestad, the Radio Curious assistant producer, spoke with Daryl Cherney about this film, which he produced, and his experiences resulting from the bombing. They visited on March 29, 2012, in the studios of KMEC Radio, inside the Mendocino Environmental Center, a group which has a long-standing history of supporting social and environmental movements, including Earth First. Their conversation began when Christina asked Daryl Cherney to describe the attempted assassination on Judy Berry and him. May 24th, 1990, Judy Barry and I were car bombed while we were organizing to save the Redwoods for something called Redwood Summer, a, a season-long campaign. And, and we, that was here in Northern California. In Mendocino and Humboldt counties. And we were immediately arrested by the FBI and the Oakland police, basically for transporting explosives, for car bombing ourselves, as they might say, even though the bomb itself had a motion trigger which meant that the bomb would only go off in a moving vehicle. It was hidden under the driver's seat. Well, one of the first agents on the scene was Special Agent Frank Doyle, the head of the FBI's terror division in San Francisco, and also a man who taught something called bomb school in Humboldt County, California. Uh, just 30 days before the bombing, bomb school was interesting because they were blowing up cars with pipe bombs, just a month before Judy Barry's car was blown up with a pipe bomb. They were doing it on lumber company land that belonged to Louisiana Pacific, Judy's principal adversary. And when the bomb went off, Frank Doyle turned to one of his students who, coincidentally or not, happened to be at the scene of the bombing. And he turned to his student and said that this was the final exam, that Judy's bomb car was the final exam. We have that on videotape, the FBI's own videotape. 
So we know that because bomb school was held on lumber company property and the chief of the terror division was also good friends with the chief of Louisiana Pacific Security, that there was a personal relationship between the FBI, a personal and professional relationship between the FBI and uh, the Louisiana Pacific Timber Company. Now, that doesn't make anybody guilty alone, but there is so much more evidence to go goes along with that, principally that right off the bat, Special Agent Frank Doyle started lying about the bombing itself. He said that the bomb was in the back seat in plain view where Judy and I should have seen it when it was actually hidden under the driver's seat where she never would have seen it. Um, he failed to mention that it was a booby trap with a motion trigger that would only go off in a moving car. The Oakland police and FBI said that nails that Judy was carrying in the back of her car because she was a carpenter at California Yurts and a foreman of a construction crew, that the nails in the back of Judy Barry's car matched nails in the bomb when the nails in the back of Judy Barry's car that she was carrying were roofing nails and the nails strapped to the bomb were finishing nails. They looked completely different. So all these lies told immediately on the spot indicated that this frame job was planned in advance and that law enforcement in conjunction with the lumber companies had some knowledge of it before it happened. What exactly were you and Judy doing that warranted such attention? Well, on the day of the bombing, we were organizing for Redwood Summer, which was going to bring and did bring thousands of kids and adults to Northern California to defend the Redwoods. It was an election year, Forest Forever, Proposition 130 was on the ballot. That was going to reform timber, pra timber practices, ban clear-cutting, protect endangered species, expand stream protection zones. So billions of dollars were, in fact, at stake. You know, the kind of money that was at stake that might make somebody want to kill an organizer like Judy Barry. And Judy had the gift of gab. Thousands of people would come to hear her speak. When you say billions of dollars were at stake, do you mean... From logging? Yes, that if you banned clear-cutting, the timber companies would make less money. If you reformed forestry practices, there would be less of a profit. So yes, billions of dollars were in fact at stake through this ballot initiative called Forest Forever. And Judy was organizing Redwood Summer, which was designed to blockade the logging of ancient redwood trees until the election came and hopefully would win. As it turns out, the t industry used the bombing against this ballot initiative to say, don't vote for Forest Forever, it's supported by terrorists. That was right in the California uh, ballot pamphlet, as well as in various advertisements. So there was a direct correlation between the bombing and the ballot initiative and the campaign to try to stop, that successfully stopped Forest Forever from winning the California state ballot. It lost by 1%. But Judy was also bringing lumber uh, company employees, timber workers, loggers, mill workers, truck drivers, together with environmentalists. She was building bridges because she herself was a union organizer. And she was starting unions in Pacific Lumber, Louisiana Pacific, and Georgia Pacific Lumber companies all at the same time. Sometimes people ask me, how could Judy do all that? And I said, well, she never slept. She was tireless. 
and she raised two children as a single mom. So Judy was able to over to to transcend the whole dynamic, the whole ideology of the oppressor, which is divide and conquer. In order to manipulate the little people here on planet Earth, you have to divide them and pit them against each other. Judy was doing the antithesis of that. She was bringing people together, the loggers and the environmentalists, and that made her a target for sure. So you were bombed, and then you were charged uh, as being the responsible for your own bombing. Yes. Um, David Brower, former uh, CEO of the Sierra Club and founder of Earth Island Institute um, and Friends of the Earth, said that um, we were being accused of self-assassination. Um, that was, of course, made tongue-in-cheek. But yes, we were actually not charged. We were simply arrested. But the public doesn't always understand the difference between being arrested and being charged. You're arrested by the police and you're charged by the district attorney. We were never charged with the crime, but our names were dragged through the mud. And so the um, move by law enforcement and the lumber companies to discredit Earth First, Redwood Summer, and also the alliance between timber workers and environmentalists succeeded to a point. You know, I wrote a song, Who Bombed Judy Barry, right after the bombing. I sang it for Judy in August of 1990. She was bombed in, on May 24th, 1990. And what the song basically said was, regardless of who bombed Judy Barry, there was a system behind it. That it was a whole mentality that bombed her, not just a particular individual. And the system and the mentality was that of the timber industry in allegiance with the FBI. Can you go into that a little bit? Yes. What do you mean? Well, the FBI was created in 1915 or so to go after the industrial labor movement. And by 1920, they were rounding up 20,000 labor union people at a time particularly with the industrial workers of the world, the IWW. And from its onset, it's been a political police force uh, working on behalf of the status quo, the 1% as they are now known, uh, the wealthy of this country, the, the corporate titans. So as we go up to the present day, we see the FBI hasn't changed much with their COINTELPRO counterintelligence program, disinformation campaigns against the American Indian movement, the Black Panthers, uh, and the civil rights movement, so many others. And it takes us right up to the environmental movement and Earth First in the 1980s and 90s. What was it like for you being the victim of an attempted assassination? First, I want to make it clear that I was in the car by fate that day. I was not supposed to be in the passenger seat with Judy. I mean, Judy and I always traveled together, and we had been lovers for two years. Right up until that point, we were in the process of breaking up. So we actually weren't supposed to be riding in the car that day, but um, Judy's car was pulling out of Oakland, and I actually had a choice of two cars to ride in. And I, I said, who should I ride with? And Judy said, me. And that's how I got in Judy's car that day. Um, in some ways, I'm glad I was there because I was not badly injured, but I was able to talk to Judy as she moaned in pain her pelvis was shattered, her um, leg was partially paralyzed, her coccyx and sacrum, her lower vertebrae were pulverized and dislocated, her, she had intestinal damage. And I just told her over and over again, I love you, you're going to make it. I love you, you're going to make it. 
And then immediately after the bombing, I was able to talk to the media from my jail cell, even. Uh, there was a payphone in the jail cell, and I called the press. Collect. So I was able to be a voice for both of us when she couldn't speak because she was unconscious in the ICU, the intensive care unit. And then seven years later, after surviving the bombing, she passed away from cancer. So again, I was alive to carry on our lawsuit against the FBI and Oakland Police, a lawsuit that said that they knew we were in fact innocent. Right from the get-go, they knew we didn't bomb ourselves, they knew it wasn't our bomb, but they lied in order to silence us, to discredit us. And that is a violation of the First Amendment of the Constitution that guarantees us freedom of speech. We also charged them successfully with violations of the Fourth Amendment, which protects us from false arrest and illegal search and seizure. So if I hadn't been in, in the car that day, who knows how differently things would have gone. Maybe they would have accused me of trying to kill Judy. But I got in the car and pretty much it changed reality forever. How did it feel? I watched the woman that I loved from the day I met her to the day she passed have her body ruined before my very eyes. And <clears throat> from that moment onward, I had a feeling of helplessness that no matter how good I was at anything that I could master, I could never put Judy Barry back together again. There was no amount of healing that I or anybody could do that could lessen her pain and make her whole again. So in that respect, for as long as Judy lived, I was always a little sad. There was always a sadness I carried around with me. So that's how it felt. You're listening to a conversation between Radio Curious assistant producer Christina Onestad and Daryl Cherney, the producer of Who Bombed Judy Berry, a film about his experience. This is Radio Curious. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. What was it like to have your name, as you put it, rung through the mud? I was pretty indignant about it and pretty angry. I've always had a great affection and affiliation for working people. My father was a union man. Um, I've worked hard all my life. Even if I've been a volunteer, I still put in a lot of labor every single day. And I have great respect for people who work hard, like loggers and mill workers. So to have myself and Judy accused uh, of, of being bombers and having our names dragged through the mud and discredited in our own communities was deeply angering. And, and yet at the same time, I kind of have a, a bit of a detached personality. I, I can kind of look at things and, you know, like an outside observer and say, you know, I know who I am and I'm not going to allow what other people think of me bother me too much because there's work to do. We need to find the bomber. We need to save the Redwoods, not necessarily in that order. And we need to go on with our lives. But, you know, I grew up in New York City. You mess with me, I'm not going to let go. I'm going to find out who bombed Judy and myself. I've got, I'm pretty tenacious. That's how I was raised. So I've committed myself until the bomber is found to 
keep on that quest to find out who bombed Judy Barry. And to that end, we produced a film, Who Bombed Judy Barry? And if I may just say, the purpose of the movie is fourfold. One, to educate people about tactics and strategies that Earth First was particularly adept at and that Judy Barry in particular was very articulate in explaining. Two, to inspire people. Our movie's filled with victories. It's filled with humor and song. Even though it, it addresses a serious subject, there's a lightness to it. People laugh throughout the movie as well as cry because Judy was the funniest person I ever knew. And, and the songs we sang were funny, like the FBI stole my fiddle. Uh, third purpose, purpose of the movie is to educate people who the historical figure Judy Barry was and is. We're shortened heroes these days, and in particular women heroes or sheroes, perhaps. And I think the world needs to know, I think the world needs Judy Barry more than ever. In fact, I had an epiphany while I was working on this movie, somewhere in the middle of it, the two and a half years we worked on it. I woke up one day and I said, oh my God, I'm still organizing with Judy. I'm still working with Judy. Because her words and her, her speeches and her present, presence s appear to be just as powerful from the screen as they were in real life. And the fourth purpose of the movie is to trigger a legitimate law enforcement investigation of who bombed Judy Barry, even after 22 years. This case is extremely solvable. There's a mountain of evidence. And if they can solve the Medgar Evers murder case 30 years later and go after the Birmingham church bombers from the civil rights days 30 or 40 years later, we can find out who bombed Judy Barry 22 years later. And I'm going to say on this radio station, we are going to find out who bombed Judy Barry. We're pretty darn close. So you were one of the first cases in the U.S. to have won a lawsuit a First Amendment violation lawsuit against the FBI. When we sued the FBI and the Oakland Police, as I explained before, we were awarded by a jury $4.4 million. What is it like to be an American citizen whose own government has thwarted efforts at finding out who your attempted assassin is? <laughs> what is it like? Well, oppression by governments goes back as long as there's been governments. Ancient Egypt, Greece, Rome, the Middle Ages, the Spanish Inquisition, Asia, Africa, United States, South America. It's nothing new here. So it basically, what it was like, it just made me feel like, okay, we're part of the club. We're part of the world community that has been persecuted by governments. We're not necessarily super special because of that. But what makes our case special is we have an opportunity to find out the truth. So it feels like a privilege to be able to have the ability in this country where there's still a modicum of democracy left and openness left even though it's dwindling quickly. It feels like a great opportunity and honor to be able to pursue this. I think that the the story Who Bombed Judy Berry, the documentary that you made, is is a real testament to the human spirit. It is. The movie is framed by Judy Berry giving her deathbed testimony. Here she is with just 30 days left to live. The FBI has been trying to prevent her from testifying at all, and then they try to prevent her from testifying on videotape, which became the framework of our movie many years later, as in now. 
And you watch a woman in a severely weakened state still muster up strength, Herculean strength, that is really the mark of a true hero. So she then, as she tells her story in somewhat chronological order, under oath, we have mountains of video, probably 700 hours from local videographers here in Mendocino and Humboldt down to the Bay Area that we drew from. So whatever Judy talks about, we are able to depict it. She's talking about a tree sit. We'll, we'll, sh we'll show you the tree sit. She's talking about the car bomb. We'll show you the news footage of the bombing. She says that she arrived at a demonstration. We can show you walking out of the van as she goes to the demonstration because we had an eco paparazzi that was following us around wherever we went because we were kind of colorful characters that the videographers loved to video. So that fortuitous set of circumstances made this documentary somewhat easier to tell than if we had been starting from scratch. And the fact is, this documentary is 100% archival footage. We did no new interviews for this. All the footage is from the past at the time that the demonstrations, that the lawsuit, that the testimony, that the tree sits, that the speeches were happening. So you're really in the moment for the entire time. And we do tell a story. It has character arcs. You've got twists and turns of the plot. It's a thriller. It's a mystery. And it's a good story. When people say, who's your target audience? My response is, anybody who likes a good story. I think one of the stories is about the spirit and the perseverance of activists to stand their truth even in, in the face of repression. Can you talk to that? Well, <clears throat> you know, when we were bombed, we could have easily have backed down, walked away, said, hey, this is more than we can handle. But as the two principal organizers of Redwood Summer, we knew that if we did that, the rest of the movement might follow suit because that was exactly what the FBI wanted. They wanted us to back down. So even as wounded as Judy was and as fearful that we, as we were at the time that somebody might make a second attempt, we had almost an obligation to not back down no matter how adversarial the circumstances were. So yes, we were in their face. We were, we're kind of in your face people. You know, East Coasters, Judy from Baltimore, myself from New York, we're in your face. We're in the FBI and Oakland Police's face because they went after us on behalf of the timber industry. There's a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine that I clipped. It's two FBI agents at the door of some average middle-aged, middle middle-class couple. And the caption says, Hi, we're from the FBI and we're here to scare the hell out of you. 90% of what they do is generate fear. Try to scare people away from becoming active, to create paranoia. Yes, 10% is physical. They can throw you in jail. They can beat you up. They can make sure you can never work again if they feel like it, like they did during the McCarthy era and the Red Scare. 
But a lot of it, most of it, is fear. And if we as a people are unafraid, then they've lost 90% of their power over us. Now, of course, what the hell is a government agency in a democratic society doing generating fear over people? Well, as, as I said, politics as usual, as long as there's been politics. And who are we? We're resistance standing up for right as usual, as long as there's been resistance. So this is an old story. I think what's different about today than ancient Rome or ancient Egypt is that our biosphere is at stake. The planet is at stake. The human mind is still the same. The torture and atrocities and destruction that we, we level and wage is still the same. But there's far fewer resources left. And the very fabric of the planet itself, its ozone layer above, its ice caps on our polar, on, on, our, on our poles, are deteriorating alarmingly to the point where we may just be the last generation that could have the honor and privilege of defending life on this planet as we know it. And so whatever fear that I or others might have of the FBI, the Oakland police, or, or whoever bombed Judy Barry and myself, that fear is dwarfed by my fear of losing our planet Earth's ability to house all of us. She's a beautiful planet. It's a wonderful place. Her colors and her sounds and her animals, even the people. So wonderful. What a gift to destroy that for a McDonald's hamburger or some paper towels or to be able to burn fossil fuels for a few score year before they're all used up just so we can get somewhere faster and can live farther away. It just seems sheer lunacy. To that end, I'll paraphrase Albert Einstein and say that the challenge for humanity is for our spiritual evolution to catch up with our technological evolution. So that's how I see it. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for being with us on Radio Curious. Well, thank you for having me. As we wrap it up, I have three questions for you that we ask all of our guests on Radio Curious. And the first one is, can you describe an aha or eureka moment in your life? Many. An instance that shifted or changed things for you. The major shift in my life was the moment that I realized that mistakes are to be learned from instead of punished for. And what would you like to do with the rest of this one precious life? In general, I'm dedicated to making this world a better place. If I can help shift humanity's consciousness so that we reconnect with our planet and each other, so that we're not bent on destroying our planet and each other, if I can make any kind of contribution to that at all, that would be my mission. That and perhaps achieving a little bit more inner peace, a little bit more calm in my own body. And can you uh, tell us a book that you've read recently that you can recommend to our listeners? The Alphabet Versus the Goddess by Daniel Schlein, who basically puts forth the theory that as soon as the written word was introduced to any society, they went from being matriarchal to patriarchal within a matter of just a few years. Well, thank you, Daryl, for being with us on Radio Curious. And thank you for having me, Christina. Mm -hmm. 
Daryl Cherney is the producer of the film Who Bombed Judy Berry? The website for the film is www.whobombedjudyberry that's J-U-D-I-B-A-R-I dot com. The book that Daryl Cherney recommends is The Alphabet Versus the Goddess by Alan Schlein, S-H-L-A-I-N. All Radio Curious programs are free at our website, radiocurious.org. Our phone is 707-462-6541. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Anastad is our associate producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.